0: I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Andrew Price. Welcome to Deep Cuts, the podcast where we pick a topic and walk you through the ins, the outs, and the nitty gritty, so you can appear like an interesting and idiosyncratic person at your next forced social function. Today's topic is... Shinseng Ok. Who is Shinseng Ok? Well... He was a Korean filmmaker known colloquially as the prince of Korean cinema. Two of his movies screened at Cannes, countless are beloved classics. And he even enjoyed a time as a big budget Hollywood director of such films as Three Ninjas, colon, Knuckle Up. However, the legacy that looms largest over his personal accomplishments is when he was kidnapped by Kim Jong Il, held captive in North Korea and forced to make films at gunpoint. artist is kidnapped in the woods. Born Shin Ti Sao on October 11th, 1923, the man in question would have one of the most bizarre and complex careers of any working artist in the 20th century. He was the son of a prominent doctor of Chinese medicine, raised in Chongjin in the northeastern area of Korea, and he was an artistically adventurous child from a very young age. At the time of his childhood, the area that he was raised in was occupied by Japanese forces. Today, Chong Jin is part of North Korea. Eventually, changing his name to Shin Sang-ok for film purposes, the man in question studied at the Tokyo Fine Arts School. From a young age, he had designs on becoming a filmmaker. He started his career as an assistant production designer on Choi In-kyu's Viva Freedom, the first Korean film produced after Korea declared independence from Japan. He quickly rose through the ranks, proving himself an adventurous creator with a keen eye for cinematography. Throughout the, in air quotes, golden age of South Korean cinema during the late 1950s and early 1960s, Shin was highly prolific, sometimes directing two or three films per year. This eventually earned him the nickname the Prince of South Korean cinema. Two of his most famous efforts were the Evil Night released in 1952 and A Flower in Hell released in 1958. The production company that he started during the late 1960s produced over 300 films.
1: Now is that is that 300 films up until he got kidnapped or in the
0: lifetime like in its lifetime? I believe it's up until he got kidnapped because basically the the company got shut down. Spoiler alert. We'll get to it in a minute, but yeah, I believe it's 'Cause it, it I mean, he made a bunch of movies, but also they just kind of became like the default production company for movies in uh Korea during the sixties and late fifties. Um they like they produced everything. They produced action movies, they produced musicals, they produced, you know, everything. That's a lot of fucking movies. There's <laughs> a lot of movies, yeah. Um before we get too deep into this stuff, because we're about to we're about to Get into the kidnapping and all the all the juicy bits. But before we blow through all of his personal history, um, were you aware of this story and Shin Sang-ok prior to us doing this episode?
1: No, I can't say I was. Uh, the the like, we've talked about this off off uh, off mic, but this is truly a deep cuts episode. This is this is a deep cuts. Uh, this is a deep cuts listeners deep cuts episode because. It is that ex- it, it lives up to the namesake and the slogan or whatever the the elevator pitch of deep cuts. Um, and obviously the show is like we do a lot of different things with the show and we've definitely the show has evolved since we started it. And we also do some t- some things sometimes where it doesn't necessarily actually align with like kind of the concept of what we said the show was, but we just want to do it anyway. And we like, you know, kind of who cares as long as it's a good episode, but this episode just fully lives up to what deep cuts is, which is I should have heard about this. Like this, everybody should know about this. And yet somehow we don't, it's, it's, it's such a crazy story. It involves such large pieces of, of um, culture and pop culture. Um, And yet it just has seemingly completely flown under the radar in, in the United States. I don't know how well known this story is in South Korea or, north korea or japan or whatever but in the united states it just seems to have flown under the radar which is crazy to me
0: yeah and i think a large part of that is just americans don't care about anything that's not american you know like which sucks you're right but it
1: seems like the inclusion of uh kim jong-il would have boosted it to being having more expo- having more uh exposure here considering how kind of obsessed we, ca- we became with him for a while
0: yeah yeah he plays a very prominent role in the story as as we'll be detailing in a minute but it's it's also just so interesting to me the and we're going to break down all of the movies that uh Shin Sang-ok made um while he was kidnapped but it's so interesting to me the kind of disparate nature of them and how what a wide swath of work it is and also how fucking sad all of this is like It just sucks, man, especially in the fact that he's this massive, you know, artistic luminary in South Korea. And then just not anymore, baby. Now you're now you're our literal prisoner. It's just surreal.
1: Yeah. And and that's another thing, too, is like it seems like there's a lot of things converging to where this should like even even with what you said about how we kind of just don't care about um, things culturally outside of our country except for like a few select things there's there's a lot of things converging in this story that just feel like they would sort of all come together to make this story known uh kim jong-il's involvement in it the fact that it's about uh it's tangentially related to godzilla which is obviously a very well-known property biggest movie in the country right now is godzilla versus kong not that that necessarily means that anybody going to see the, that movie are aware of like the the lineage of that franchise and the, the you know all the toho original japanese movies but you know it's still very very pop culturally well known and then also at least within cinephile circles or whatever korean cinema has gotten very popular in the last 10 years um, so there's just a lot of things coming together That would make you feel like you would At least have heard this in passing So it's crazy to me that I've just never never heard of it at all
0: During the 1970s, Shin Sangok's Productivity slows down The government, well, it started to interfere Strict censorship laws Started being enacted Eventually in 1978, the government Led by a general named Park Chung-hee Literally shut down Shin's studio And here's where our story takes a hard right turn Or a hard turn in a northerly direction get it because north north korea that's a joke sort of but not funny because this is so depressing in 1978 shin sang ok's ex-wife the mega famous actor choi yoon hee is kidnapped while in hong kong and taken to north korea she was basically lured there um with the the promise of a, an acting role it was like a, a um, a, supposedly a, a Hong Kong production company wanted to make a film and they wanted her to star in it. And, uh, she, I think had been struggling to find work or something. There was a, there's a story about, about her being like not really having a, an option. So she went there to basically kind of like feel it out. Like, are these people going to be people I want to work with? And she got to a hotel room and then woke up in North Korea. <laughs> It's horrible. It's horrible. Yeah, it's fucking nuts. And then this is where things kick into even more high gear. Shin Sang-ok ok was initially the suspected culprit because he and Choi had been divorced somewhat acrimoniously, apparently. However, after going to Hong Kong to investigate, he too was kidnapped. And this is what's crazy is he had remarried and has started another family. So he had, I think, two kids with another woman. In the, I think, six years or something like that, that they had been divorced. And then, you know, all of these kind of like, bro, you fucking you did this to her. You did this to her. You did this to her uh, kind of public accusations or like he's like, I got to get to the bottom of this. This is like ruining my reputation. This is insane. And he wasn't he wasn't working that much at this point either, specifically because The South Korean government had shut down his production company and had made, you know, everything so difficult from a censorship perspective. So he was in talks with a Japanese production company to make a movie around this time and went to Hong Kong basically to try and be like, she really in North Korea. She just fucking hiding in Hong Kong. And this is all like a publicity thing to try and tank my movie or something like what's going on. And so he then was reached out to by, in air quotes, the same production company. He went to this meeting, they put a burlap sack over his head, and he woke up in North Korea.
1: Now, this is, this is where the story just gets really meta, because it's about this, this uh, you know, very very prolific and very well-known film director. Obviously, as we get on, it's going to ha- you know, be more involved with filmmaking and making movies. But this just what's happened so far sounds like the plot to like a film noir. This just It that, does, like, it really does. The other stuff kind of changes gears, but just this, like that literally sounds like it could be a like a, a an opening setup for a film noir.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And also the fact that he, he he was accused of disappearing her.
1: Yeah, and then he goes to investigate
0: and then yeah, it's like uncanny. Yeah. So Who was behind these kidnappings? Who was the dastardly genius, the malevolent manipulator behind the scenes, pulling the strings, making sure that these superstars of South Korean cinema were taken off the market? Any guesses? It's Kim Jong-il. It's it's fucking Kim Jong-il. Motherfucking Kim Jong-il. Not not Kim Jong-un. Not Kim Jong-un. You might have
1: forgot about our baby boy, Il. (laughs) License to Il. (laughs) <laughs> license to ill baby see all you all you gen z's out there you know about kim jong-un you know about this fucking crazy shit he's doing over there going around taking pictures with factory workers where he's making them smile and look like they're happy but in reality there's somebody off camera like holding a gun to their head you know about the fucking movie that seth rogan made where randall park plays him you know about all that shit you don't know about the og You don't know about us uh, uh, um, 90s babies only know about this. 90s kids only know about the OG
0: Kim Jong-il, licensed to ill. The current generation has a portly, bad hair, hair dude dictator mistreating people. But in the 90s, we had a portly... Dictator with bad hair mistreating people who wore Elton John sunglasses and looked like he was tr-
1: he was trying to be like a weird Elvis guy. <laughs> See, that's what you that's what you miss out. King Kim Jong Un, like he's got the he's got the the weird kind of like fascist haircut and he's got the you know, he's got the the, the
0: portliness going on. But he ain't got that vibe. You know, if I had to sum up the difference between Kim Jong Il and Kim Jong Un, it's all in the last name uh, of their uh, the last word in their names. Right. Because when I look at Kim Jong Un, I go, Un. when I look at Kim Jong Il, I go. Eww.
1: Yep. That's <laughs> yeah. That and then that, thats the thing they teach you. In st- well, at least when we were when we were '90s babies, only know this, but they taught you that in school. It was like the s- snake is yellow, kill a fellow; snake is brown, put it down, or whatever whatever that saying is for which types of snakes are are poisonous. And then they had you know they had Kim Jong Un see, see you next June. Yeah, well, you went to you you didn't go to school, you don't know. We don't have schools in Arizona. Kim Jong Il, then that's the real deal.
0: <laughs> kim jong-un see you next june kim jong-il that's the real deal
1: yeah that's that's what we learned in school and that was when we how we knew which one was the was the was the better one but you know now you gen z's like you have your tiktok and stuff and they don't they don't teach you that <laughs>
0: So, just for reference, no, Kim Jong-il was not the leader of North Korea at the time that this happened. He was the head of the propaganda and film department of the government, not the supreme leader. Why would he do this then? Well, he wanted to establish a film industry in his country. He wanted to sway international opinions. He wanted the eyes of the world to be swayed to their perspective. He wanted to illustrate the evils of capitalism. He wanted to make films that could serve the North Korean interests and be consumed by the global population.
1: And once again, you you uh you zoomers out there are, just aren't going to understand this, but for 90s babies only. You know you're this you're connecting some some dots here because you're like, "Oh my god. Remember the 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 big thing about Kim Jong Il, the thing, the thing that we all knew about him other than his like fascist dictatorship and mistreatment of his citizens. He loved movies. He was super into films and he was like obsessed with them. And he like had all these movies imported and he had like thousands of DVDs or VHSs or whatever fucking technology was existed
0: back then. It's like it's like 1999. And he's like, I got the new Betamax.
1: I have I have an extensive Laserdisc collection. And it was he was like he was the head of the film commission in North Korea. But you didn't know that. I feel like a lot of people don't know that. I don't think that 90s babies only, but only some know the true knowledge. Not Gen Z though. You guys, all you know all you know is is uh
0: Did you just did you just did you just become old like just right before my eyes? Did you just turn into a toxic nostalgic Facebook group right in this conversation?
1: <laughs> the only weird like obsessive gatekeeping of nostalgia I will accept is insisting that kim jong-il is better than kim (laughs) jong-un because he's a true 90s og
0: because he's a true 90s fascist as opposed to this weak sauce 2020 fascist bullshit
1: yeah you 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 gen z woke people with your with your kim jong-uns and your cancel culture and your you know middle parting your hair see kim jong-un middle parts his hair Typical Gen Z. They give us shit for our side parts, side parts and Kim Jong-il
0: all the way. So the question is, how would he advance these ideals for the Workers' Party of Korea? Well, simple. Kidnapping. They would kidnap the biggest and brightest of the South Korean film industry and force them to make propaganda at both literal and metaphorical gunpoint. Choi and Shin were so uniquely positioned in their former romantic past that made them bond that they could easily be, you know, exploited by North Korean officials. They were the perfect victims and the perfect workers. Shin was given a lavish estate to preside over. However, following unsuccessful escape attempts, he was imprisoned and under 24-hour guard for multiple years. However, from 1983 on, Shin Sang-ok directed seven films with Kim Jong-il acting as executive producer, consultant, and jailer. Sounds like the American film business. Yeah, I think there's something to, there's, there's something to be said that, uh, your boy, Kim Jong-il, he shares some commonalities with, uh, Harvey Weinstein. You know what I mean? Harvey Weinstein, eighties and nineties, auteur producer, you know, uh, indie cinema avant-garde mainstreamizer, sometimes also rapist, and, um, Kim Jong-il, piece of a fascist machinery imprisoning and, and devaluing human life. For multiple decades, and um, also big fan of uh, chunky monsters and musicals.
1: And also, you, you never, you never see anyone kidnap anybody anymore. That's that's you know the nineties, man. It's the good old days. Nobody kidnaps anybody anymore. You you Gen Zs, you can't just, you, you can't even you you can't you 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 text. You only text. You don't get on the phone. You don't answer your doors, and you don't go out there into the world and kidnap the people that you want to force to make movies for you. <laughs> Hashtag snowflakes.
0: God damn it. Thanks for listening to this episode. You should definitely go like the Facebook page for the Deep Cuts pod because we do lots of cool video content on there that you'll be sure to like. Also, please join our Facebook group.
1: That's Deep Cuts podcast on Facebook and the Deep Cuts podcast Facebook group. Also follow us on Instagram at Deep Cuts pod.
0: Act 2: The Work. The first film that Shin Sang-ok would direct is a film called An Emissary of No Return, which was released in 1984.
1: Also can we just right just jumping right into this? Can we also talk about the fact that like they kidnapped him and they held, and they were h- holding him in North Korea with this intention of like they did this they executed this whole like labyrinthian fucking, like, like I said, film noir-esque plot to lure his ex-wife, kidnap her so that they could lure him to kidnap him. But then they they held him, like, for, like, five years before he actually ever made a movie. Like, he was just fucking chilling in North Korea just as a prisoner. Just, like, what the fuck is going on?
0: For a period of it, he was, like, in private prison, like, a little, like, you know, under house arrest, basically. But there is a period um, where he was in full-on prison. Like, full prisoner number 78422 step forward and wear your jumpsuit here's your mandatory beige jumpsuit that looks like kim jong il here's your mandatory sunglasses that looks like kim jong il and we're going to cut your hair to look just like kim jong il
1: yeah and he was he was doing that for f- like 5 years before he
0: ever did ever got to this part yeah Yeah, I wonder how much of that is, like, he would—he refused to make work for them. And after five fucking years, he was like, all right, fine, fuck it. Like, let's do this. Um, Yeah, I mean, part of me wonders, like, did he refuse initially? And then they, you know, kept him in fucking prison for five years. And then eventually he was just like... Alright, fine, fuck it, man. I'll direct these fucking movies for you. Let's do this.
1: Yeah, this is this is why I want to see the fucking film noir ad- adaptation of this. Cause just a little, there's little like pieces, there's little human nuances of the story that aren't fully explained that I would like to know. Like, was him going and searching for his ex-wife initially, was that solely motivated by trying to clear his name? Or was there some kind of leftover feelings of like, oh no, like my one true love has been has has been secreted away by some mysterious force and I need to find her. This is more important than this new family I've created. And then this is like, yeah, like you said, like, was that just a weird mandatory part of the situation? Where we're like, all right, we got to get this guy. We got to make him have him make a bunch of movies. But first, he's got to, like, be in prison for five years because we just that's just how we do it in North Korea. Or like you said. Was he just, were they just, you know, taking him out every five days and being like, are you ready to, are you ready to sit in that chair? And there's like a director's chair with his name on it. And he's like, he spits in their face and then they just throw him back in the the, the prison. Like and
0: that just happened for five years before he finally was like, all right, all right, I'll do it. There's got to be some version of that though, because he literally attempted to escape because they gave him like a mansion at first and he escaped twice. And then they found him, like, I think one time they found him just like walking down the road and they were like, bro, are you, are you Shinsang And he was like, oh, yeah, no, don't worry about me. I'm good. No. Yeah, he's like got a fake mustache. Nope, not me. Not me. That's just your finger. You're
1: just holding your finger up to your m-
0: nose. No, no, no. My My mustache just looks like a nose. I mean, a face. I mean, a finger. It's fine. Don't worry about it.
1: Oh, I'm already in the prison truck. But it happened in the middle of what I just tried to say.
0: Oh, this is what prison looks like. Interesting, interesting, interesting. I'm going to escape here too. Smash cut to walking down the same road. Excuse me, are you, are you, are you Shinsang No. <laughs> <laughs> Sir, you're just holding four fingers against your face.
1: No, I just, I have a, I have a, I have an early 2000s emo beard. <laughs> or a... <laughs> Or a uh, ancient philosopher beard, whichever one feels right to you.
0: No, no, I just have uh, I just have an Egyptian pharaoh beard. It's fine. It's just shaped like hands. It's okay. Don't worry about it. I'm already in
1: solitary confinement.
0: <laughs> oh, fuck. It's been five years. What, you want me to make this movie that's like a propaganda thing about the fucking supreme leader and the, the Hague? Yeah, that's fine. Fuck it. Let's do it. Let's do it.
1: I have one question. Can I keep the beard?
0: I have one question. Can we hire a PA to walk around with their hands on my face- in the shape of a beard.
1: Damn it, you're a madman, but we need you. Consider it done.
0: <laughs> oh, God. So the first film is An Emissary of No Return, released in 1984. An Emissary of No Return was directed by both Shin Sang-ok and his former wife, Choi. That had to be an awkward experience. Ugh, ugh, ugh. Well, I'm curious too. like what their level of contact was prior, like during the five years or so that he was in and out of prison. Like, was she, were they, like, were they using her as a means to manipulate him? So she would just like, they would like shuttle her to the prison every couple months and be like, go ask him to go fucking make a thing
1: or like. I'm telling you, Dave, I gotta see the fucking film noir adaptation to
0: learn these, to unlock these secrets. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Um. It's uh. It, but basically, the, uh, the 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 movie of No Return" is based on a play um that was allegedly written by uh the country's leader Kim Il song um and you know he's a great dictator because he's got ill in his name only only ills you know none of this oons, just ills but you see this is that. This is that midnight in
1: Paris thing, though, is like you realize like, oh, you're you're nostalgic for the time that you grew up. But then you realize that the people before you were also nostalgic because then you have all the boomers who are just like Kim Il-Song. That's who it's fucking about. You 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 Gen Xers and you millennials. You don't you don't fucking know. You don't know about the you don't know about Kim Il-Song. Kim Kim Jong Il. What what is this bullshit? (laughs)
0: Yeah, we don't we don't want th- these glasses. No, we're not into these glasses. You know what we're into? We're into. I don't even know enough about Kim Il Sung to make a reference, so I don't know why I started this joke.
1: And then you and you start to you look at it and you start to realize, like, oh, it's just a it's a cycle. It's like the the generation before you was always feeling like you know their time was better, and you are the the young whippersnapper who doesn't get it and it puts it into perspective. And then you're like, maybe, maybe Kim Jong-un isn't for me, but he's not meant to be for me. And maybe he's not better. He's just different. And maybe these, these Gen Z kids, you know, they, they just, they just, they need a different thing.
0: And then at the end of the, at the end of the movie, there's a bunch of Gen Z kids in a forest with a bunch of like knee high anthropomorphized bears cheering and playing bongos on a bunch of North Korean uh, soldier helmets And you pan over and it's you And you're silently nodding And staring off into the distance And the camera racks focus into the distance And it's Kim Jong-il, Kim Jong-un And Kim il song as force ghosts It just becomes Return of the Jedi At the end <laughs> 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 <laughs>
1: kim kim jong-il would fucking have loved that
0: yeah yeah kim jong-il would have been the only one of the three of them that was really into it um but i just think it's it's so funny too that like in all of the research i did for this like um this play that emissary of no return is based on uh, it's titled bloody confidence and um, it,
1: which sounds like a fucking a fucking John Claude Van Damme banger. Fuck yeah! From the late '80s.
0: Yeah. Um. And the funny thing about it though is that it's always positioned as a alleg- a play allegedly written by Kim Il Sung. Like even the historians are like, we all know he didn't fucking he write didn't this fucking shit. He didn't fucking write that. He didn't fucking write this shit. It's all good.
1: Yeah, he wrote that, and Kim Jong Un is better than Kim Jong Il. <laughs>
0: I love the idea of like A.O. Scott or like one of these like, you know, highly acclaimed film reviewers is just like they're like weighing in on the beef and they're just like, yeah, Kim Jong-un, yeah, he's so great. (laughs) Um, So if you're unaware, if you're unaware, An Emissary of No Return is a dramatization of The Hague Secret Emissary Affair. The affair and ensu- uh The the affair ensued when um, the Korean Emperor King uh, Gojong sent. Three unauthorized emissaries to the talks at the Hague Convention in 1907. The movie, it's basically like a nationalist melodrama. So, The Emissary of No Return actually marks a bunch of benchmarks in North Korean history cinema. Uh, In the North Korean history, oh my god, the North Korean cinema's history. Um, It's the first time that individual cast and crew members are credited on a movie. How crazy is that to comprehend? Like, they had made all these movies, all this propaganda bullshit, and it took Kim Jong-il getting Shin Sang-ok to make this movie, and he was just like, "Yeah." So, like, one of the conventions of uh, movies is that they have uh, credits on them, so we should probably do that. Kim Jong-il is just in the corner gnashing his teeth, like, oh, goddammit, fine, fine. It's not even about not crediting people, just hate text. Uh, it's the first time that Western actors appeared in a North Korean film, and um, it's the first-
1: It was actually uh, Logan Paul.
0: Yes, Logan Paul is in this movie, yes. Um, and this is actually the first time stock footage um, was uh, of, of other Western locations appeared in a North Korean movie. Um,
1: it was the fucking Citizen Kane of North Korea.
0: Yeah, basically. It, it's funny, too, because originally- Shin Sang-ok picked this play for two reasons. The first one was that he was worried if he came up with an idea that no matter what the idea was, the powers that be and specifically Kim Jong-il could use that and twist its meaning to show that he was not sympathetic to the North Korean cause and kill him. Basically, like that
1: would be. Fucking terrifying. Like I I would not like no wonder he fought to not do it for five years and chose prison because like like exactly what you're saying. You can you can interpret any kind of art in whatever way you want. Like that's kind of like the point of it. And a lot of, you know, filmmakers will always say like what this means, whatever it means to you. And it's not important what I thought about it. But in this situation, there's much higher stakes. That somebody can look at this thing and reverse engineer its meaning and just be like, execute him.
0: Yeah, pretty much. And he he was like really nervous about that, which is why he picked this play, because it was literally in air quotes written, even though it wasn't written by the Supreme Leader of North Korea. So he could just be like, I'm not it's not me. This is these are literally your words, your words.
1: The movie you say it has like a pro capitalist uh, message that's, you know. Uh, dissenting against the 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 rule of North Korea, I guess you got to execute Kim Il Sung. I gu- I mean I I mean just I'm just I'm thinking about this logically, and I just think that's what you have to do. I think you have to execute
0: him, right? I mean, I, d- don't shoot the messenger. I mean, I mean, look, I I'm not even saying this. I'm just trying to problem solve. I'm just coming to come up with solutions. Like if Kim Il Sung wrote this play and it's pro capitalist. I don't know what other options you got. He just like he really
1: like outsmarts them and works them into these like logical corners. And they all just they just like execute all of the leadership of North Korea. And he just like he liberates the whole country by catching them in this weird like who's on first routine.
0: And then the other. So the other the other reason he picked Emissary of No Return or the project that would become Emissary of No Return is that it takes place at The Hague and largely across um you know europe because it's like a spy movie right you know it's a these north korean spies they go to the hague they're going to infiltrate they're going to you know do their thing right and uh his goal was that we're going to make the first internationally produced north korean movie we're going to shoot on location in all these countries and we're going to make this big bond epic style film in countries low-key that all have you know, asylum that I can try and escape to. Um he's like, yeah, I'm picturing a scene. And you know,
1: it's very important. I feel like this is the pivotal scene in the whole movie, and it has to be exactly this way, or else the movie just falls apart. If it's not exactly to the T in my vision, the whole movie's ruined. And this scene takes place in my house in South Korea. And the camera and all the crew have to be outside of the house. And I, as the director, have to be inside of the house. And it's very important. So you're going to set up and you're going to. So we have to we have to call the, the South Korean military has to be there. They're 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 a huge part of the scene. So we call them and the South Korean police. They're in the movie. We call them and they all get here. And we have the crew and the actors and they stand outside with the military and the police. And then I, as a director, see, I don't want to get in the way of the actors vision, like what they're trying to do. So I'm going to be in my house and I have to lock the door so that I can't get to them. I have to stop myself from intervening.
0: And then, you know, I've also got this other idea, you know, OK, so you don't want to do that scene. That's fine. That's that's fine. That's fine. That's fine. Um, But I think this other idea for a scene, right? So we're going to be shooting at The Hague, but. What if after the actors are infiltrating the Hague, they all have to go to the U.S. consulate and they need to interview somebody at the inter- the U.S. consulate? And I, I I will play the person that's at the U.S. consulate that's interviewing them. And then there's going to be a scene where I go and I have to go see my boss to see if you know they can get the piece of information they need. And I'm going to go into a room marked. Extradition and asylum only do not enter. And you guys can't come in until I come out. How about that? Yeah, so, you know, it, the, the film definitely accomplished its job. Um, it was met with kind of uproarious applause by North Korean residents. Um, and the, the film was used as a tool of propaganda despite, you know, Shin attempting to not make an overtly problematic propagandist film. Um, he tried to make this jingoistic story something that had layers to it, and you know, it's it is what it is. Uh, the outside world was a bit kind of chillier towards the film. Um, they kind of were like, eh, "This is like a fucking North Korea propaganda movie." I don't know about this. <laughs> <laughs> I just love that it's like the just
1: the reaction to this. He's like, he's like, they're fucking. They're fucking holding me prisoner. I I haven't I, I haven't seen my family in like eight years, and I'm just I I've, this is I've poured all my life into
0: this. It's all I have, and then it's like ah, it's a little it's a little trite. Just feels like it's, it's, not, it's not feeling like it's about anything personal. It feels like it's about like a like a, it's a little preachy, you know. It's a little like a little a little fascist maybe.
1: It's got third act issues for sure.
0: However, in Czechoslovakia. Uh, it was awarded the the Karlov uh, or the Karlovy Vary Film Festival. Uh, it was given a lot of awards there with Shin himself being given the special uh, jurid prize for best director. So there's that. You know, the world is just like, you're kidnapped. You need our help. Mm, we're good. <laughs> Dudes in Czechoslovakia. Oh, this was great. Fuck yeah, bro. Fucking that was the shit. I mean, I, I can't help you with the kidnapping thing, but we fucking loved this shit in czechoslovakia man we loved this shit in like 30
1: years some like fucking weirdo podcast hosts that like make like a czechoslovakian podcast about pop culture are gonna like do a reaction video to this and just
0: be like i fucking love this so the 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 next movie he made so that, that movie came out in 1984 and the next movie he made, which also came out in 1984, is a movie called Runaway. It stars uh, Cho Sang-so and, you know, Shin's wife uh, Choi. And the the, the the brief synopsis of the film is...
1: Runaway is based on a short story of the same name set in the 1920s and written by Choi So-hei. The protagonist, Song Ryu, has to return to the countryside to see his ill father. After his cousin conspires with the Japanese occupiers to sell their crop, Song Ryul is forced to immigrate to Kondo in Manchuria. His family faces numerous adversities there, and after a row with a local pharmacist, he is imprisoned. The prison is raided by Kim Il-sung and his guerrillas, who free the inmates, who take revenge on the Japanese by blowing up a railway. And then Dakota Fanning and Kristen Stewart just get it really far into the drug scene, and they're just too young for it, and... You know just being a rock star just you know it's just too much for for a young person to handle and you know they just get they get over in over their heads
0: uh it's funny how that movie sounds like a normal movie, and then the last sentence is just also kim il sung uh kills some dissonance and uh Fuck the Japanese and uh, let's blow up a train.
1: Yeah, it's just like it's like tacked onto the end. I mean, it's it's kind of like, uh, you know, that that to a less extreme degree, you know, they 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 did stuff with that with movies in the United States in the in the 30s, 40s and 50s, you know, with, with the censor board and some of the things that they would require people to do. Um, and I brought this up before, but in the in the, in the day the earth stood still. Um, Which is, you know, it's about an alien who comes to Earth to sort of warn us about how our, uh, you know, our warmongering ways are going to and, you know, the as at the time, the development of nuclear uh, weapons and uh, the way that the way that uh, all the different countries were sort of developing this mutually assured destruction uh, dynamic. Uh, coming, coming to earth and warning us that we were going to destroy ourselves. And, you know, years later when they remade it with Keanu Reeves, it became more about environmentalism of like, you're destroying the planet with your pollution and stuff like that. But uh, at the end, uh, spoiler alert for the day, the earth stood still uh, the, the alien Klaatu, he is mortally wounded and he sort of is revealed as an alien. He tells everybody, he's like, you guys are going to fucking fuck yourselves over. Stop fucking up dummies. And then he gets on his ship and he and he's flying away. And originally uh, his robot Gort uh, revives him and brings him back to life. But the but the censor board thought that uh, that was bad and that they, they shouldn't depict somebody being resurrected on film uh, because they thought that, you know, resurrection was something that only, uh, you know, Jesus was allowed to do. So they had they they reshot that scene and they added in a little moment where uh, one of the one of the characters says he has uh, after Gort like revives him he's he, one of the characters says he has the power to of resurrection and they added in a scene where he says uh, where Klaatu says no only the only the Lord has that power this this is only temporary so they change it to where he is temporarily revived but he's going to die again uh, because they they couldn't allow for The robot to have resurrection powers so you know that 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 weird like tacked on like state propaganda uh it exists all over the world obviously it's more extreme in certain certain situations
0: the my favorite thing about this though is that the the railway you know the the train explosion there's actually like a, a story behind it so the finale of the movie is this big train exploding right but that wasn't actually really the intention. Like in the original script, there there was like, they were just going to, you know, have a model train explode or whatever. But Shin Sang-ok was like joking around that it wouldn't be convincing and that they needed to, they needed to get a real train and blow up a real train. And he was completely fucking around. Like he wasn't being serious. But you know who thought he was being serious? Kim Jong-il, baby!
1: Dave. Would Kim Jong Un blow up a fucking train? No, nah. He'd do. He'd do a fucking TikTok dance, <laughs> and and be done with it for the day.
0: Yeah, he uh he he's not he's not the type to overhear the director joking and then go out and get a real train that they could blow the fuck up. <laughs> I love it.
1: That's amazing.
0: Yeah. So the next the next movie in the the kind of. Shinsang Septology? No. What is Seven? Because he made seven movies while he was there. What are Seven Babies called? Sextuplets. Sextology. The Sextology. So in the, in the Sextology of, uh, Shinsang the third movie he made was called Love, Love, My Love, which was released in 1985. Andrew, do you wanna, you wanna read us a little bit of this, uh, this, uh, synopsis? Love, Love,
1: My Love is a musical. The plot is based on the Korean folktale, The Tales of Chunhyang. Chunhyang falls in love with the upper class Ri Mong but they must marry in secret. Mong Ryong is sent away to become a government official. While he is away, Chunhyang is imprisoned by a corrupt governor. Mon Ryeong returns just in time to save her from execution and the two can publicly proclaim their love. Jang Song Hai, who plays the lead part of Chung Hyang, was an unusual choice. Her features were sharp and western, which was not what Kim Jong Il, whose preferences were usually followed, appreciated in a woman. Shin's wife, Choi In-hee, makes an appearance as chun Hyang's mother. Shin utilized techniques from North Korean mass games to realize the song and dance spectacles of the film. Love, Love, My Love was an immense success in North Korea. Its liberal view on sexuality, including the first kiss on North Korean screens, was what attracted many people to go and see the film several times. The popular success of the film even caused illegal ticket reselling for the first time in
0: Pyongyang. How crazy is that? That North Korea... North Korea's... Censorship and dogmatic approach to living was so extreme that people in a musical kissing was just like, fuck, I got to see that. This is porn. Fucking let me see them singers smooch. Yeah, fucking let me see these cuties smooching up. Just give me them smooches.
1: This was when... um uh, Paul Rubens, AKA Pee Wee Herman was, uh, was, was caught masturbating in a movie theater and arrested. He was watching this movie.
0: <laughs> it's the, during one of the uh, seminal dance numbers. That's uh, when he was just like squeege the treege. Yep. I can't resist. Uh- <laughs>
1: <laughs> he said that right before he,
0: yeah, he, he, yeah, that's, that's exactly what he said. Yeah. Um, it's so but it's so fascinating to learn about like when those firsts happened in various cultures, because this was in nineteen eighty-five. Nineteen eighty-five, and it was the first time a movie <laughs> showed somebody kissing.
1: Yeah, if you were if you were if you were half paying attention to this and you weren't listening to like the dates and stuff, you would think that we're talking about a movie that came out in like nineteen fifty.
0: Yeah. 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 And like, you know, it's a musical and and the the so, for context, while being kidnapped, he made a spy thriller, a romance movie, or, you know, like a, like a drama, like a romantic drama, and a fucking musical. There's, those are his first three movies. Like, he seems like somebody who's kind of capable of doing it all. Like, he can kind of just, I don't know, make whatever the fuck he wants to make, I guess. And
1: He's the Edgar Wright of kidnapped North Korean fucking directors
0: or is Edgar Wright The Unkidnapped English Shin Sang-ok. That's a good point. You know? I mean I'm just I'm just fucking saying, you know? So the next movie um that he made uh was a movie called Salt, which was released in 1985 and this movie is one of the ones that's um very highly regarded. Um the mo- the last movie that he made while in prison imprisoned in Korea in South North Korea is the one that everyone talks about as like the kind of crowd pleaser because it's also the most ridiculous and the most one-dimensional and the most commercially successful but this is kind of the oscar bait movie that he made and um yeah andrew if you wouldn't mind reading the synopses of salt released in
1: 1985 angelina jolie stars in the high octane action thriller
0: How amazing would that be? (laughs) I don't even know if she was born at this point, but yeah. No, she was born. She was born at this point.
1: Yeah, but she had to have been because this movie
0: exists. Yeah, because she was in this movie.
1: Choi stars in Salt as an unnamed mother who disapproves of her son after he runs away with gorillas, but eventually comes to see them as fighting for a just cause. The film is set in 1930s Kondo, where ethnic Koreans are persecuted by the Chinese and Japanese. The film employed a new virtue in North Korean cinema of short and condensed stories instead of multi-part epics. Unusual for a North Korean film, it was favorably reviewed by foreign critics. Choi's performance in particular is praised for realism. For some reason, she was able to easily conjure uh, sadness um, as if she had something in real life to to pull from to to bring that emotion out of herself. Uh, She was awarded the Best Actress Prize at the 14th Moscow International Film Festival in 1985 for her role. We love the film. Can't help with the kidnapping, but we love <laughs> the film.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. yeah. It, it also, it's interesting, too, because this kind of dovetails into stuff we had been talking about previously. Um, you know, we, we talked about the the last emperor of China. Um, and he was, you know, instrumental in Manchukuo and the, you know, the puppet state, the Chinese puppet state run by japan um during world war ii and um yeah it's it's interesting to see yeah and and, you know in manchukuo that's where the koreans were persecuted heavily yeah it's uh it's interesting to see all those uh you know the the puyi connection to this story this story to another episode that we're going to record later like it's just it's, it's interesting to see The connections building for stuff that was very disparate and not intentionally constructed to be any sort of connective tissue
1: yeah it's also interesting to just see like you know the the ethnic koreans being persecuted by the chinese and japanese and then you know we talked about uh uh, the act of killing and how um in indonesia the the ethnic chinese were persecuted and killed and you know, the Japanese internment camps in the United States during World War II. It's like, it's crazy. It's like, it's almost as if all of this, uh, this ethnic persecution and uh, brutalizing people based on their skin color or their, their, you know, cultural background is just meaningless and fucking arbitrary.
0: So the, the sixth and uh, penultimate film that we're going to talk about prior to the one that we're going to really discuss is the tale of shim chong which was released in 1985 um there's no way that was released in 85 85 all of these movies are released in 85 that doesn't seem right he was a he was a fucking beast when was fucking polgasari released hold on let me look this up i just want to double check that it was released in 85 yeah Paul Gasari was released in 1985 as well. Jesus Christ. He was the Eric Roberts
1: of South Korean directors kidnapped and forced to make movies in
0: North Korea. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. So, uh, Andrew, um, if you wouldn't mind reading the synopsis of uh, this little ditty, this little this little guy. Shim
1: Chong is a musical and is based on the traditional story of the same name. The story is of Shim Chong, the daughter of a poor blind farmer. The peasant signs a deal with a monk to deliver 300 sacks of rice in return of a sight, but is unable to deliver the goods. Shim Chong agrees to be sacrificed to the god of the sea on behalf of sailors who need to appease the deity. She is thrown into the sea and meets the god who praises her for her filial piety. Shim Chong returns to the surface inside a giant orchid that fishermen take to the king of the land. The king falls in love with her and helps her find her desperate father who has gone missing by organizing a feast for all the blind people in the kingdom.
0: You know, from here, now we get to the big kahuna, the one that I've been wanting to talk about the whole time. Motherfucking Pulgasari. Pulgasari, baby. Pulgasari. Uh if you're unaware, this is the movie that everybody always talks about when they talk about this story. They're like, this guy, he was kidnapped by North Korea, forced to make movies and he made this weird rip-off Godzilla movie that's anti-capitalist and uh it is exactly what you think it is. It is a Godzilla movie where the moral is capitalism is bad.
1: Where's the lie?
0: Where is the lie? Uh we're going to we're going to watch the trailer right now.
1: As as the great Hunter S. Thompson said, where's the lie?
0: Giant explosion! God, that fucking robot or the 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 suit is so good. Also, notice the soundtrack is just basically the the original Gojira soundtrack, just wrecking shit. So rad! Kaiju indeed. So, um, the uh you know. Polgasari looks like uh, basically Godzilla, but with bull horns, more or less. It's a giant kind of lizard mind. of. And the uh, the the high concept of the movie is there's this uh, there's this king in Korea, and he is obsessed with metals. So he, he collects everything that's metal across the whole country and takes pots and pans and valuable jewelry and everything from everyone and, and hoards it all for himself. And there's a blacksmith who makes a, a small little monster out of metal out of frustration. Um, and he, he makes it and he kind of like secrets it away. And his daughter is sitting next to it one night while they're all kind of talking about how horrible it is that the king has taken everybody's pans and pots and, you know, uh, his, the, the blacksmith's tools and all of these things. And uh, the the little girl is doing needlepoint, and she pricks herself, and the blood from her finger falls onto this little metal statue of this guy, this this lizard bullheaded dude, and it. You know what? You know what? What would have helped in the situation? A fucking thimble. But the king took my thimbles. No more fucking thimbles, baby. Uh. So it. it the blood falls on the little monster, and then the monster starts growing and growing and growing. And uh, he starts destroying everything and he, he eats metal. So he goes to the king's palace and starts, you know, he eats all the metal there and he starts destroying everything. He kills the king, takes over. But now, and everybody's initially like, yay, the king's dead. The problem is solved. Yay. But... Now they got to contend with Paul Gosari, And he has an insatiable appetite and all he wants is metal. So, you know, greed, not always so good. So, you know, it's like a, it's like a metaphor. See, this is like the, the metal represents money. And Paul Gosari represents capitalism. So like, you know, it's like a metaphor. I, I'm I'm riveted. <laughs> yeah. So the, the movie came out in 85 and, um, you know, it's basically, like I said, this, this kind of anti-capitalist metaphor that plays out through the lens of a Godzilla movie. And, um, it's, uh, it, it has a really nice scale to it. Like it, it feels. A nice
1: scale to it, you say?
0: (laughs) I was talking more about from the directorial standpoint, but yes, that too. Um, where he really like, he does a really good job of photographing running crowds in ways that the traditional tokusatsu kaiju movie doesn't. Because usually a tokusatsu movie does not have a lot of money. So because of that, all of the shots of people running is very, they're very static usually. And it's people running in the foreground in order to mask a mat line. So that in the background, there can be either a stop motion monster or a person in a suit running on a set and destroying stuff. And it's usually this idea of soldering together takes of live action footage in a real environment and set footage uh, with a monster.
1: But he had that fuck you Kim Jong Il money.
0: Yeah. He really did. And so you get all these. Sh-
1: Let's do this shit right.
0: <laughs> he gets all these really cool shots of people running and like crane footage of people running and like looking down off of really high vantage points and seeing things from the monster's perspective, which is really cool. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, it it is both simultaneously really derivative and not that great and also really fucking cool and uh, super great.
1: Godzilla or Gojira is like, yo, bros, maybe all this nuclear shit. Maybe this isn't the business. Look at look at the pain and the suffering it's caused. Look at the way it we could destroy ourselves. But Pulgasari is like, yo, fucking don't let the king have your pots.
0: <laughs> He's like, keep your fucking frying pans
1: or else a giant monster will come. And he'll eat all the pots.
0: And then you'll be fucked.
1: What are you going to cook your chicken dinners in without all your pots?
0: Chicky din-dins, no more, baby. And now it's just polgasari. Yep. So that's, that's the movie that everybody kind of, that's the that's the movie that this story is most keenly associated with. It's the story that everybody always brings up because it's the like one line internet tweet summary about it is like, did you know that Kim Jong-il kidnapped the most famous director in South Korean history and made him make a Godzilla movie?
1: Well, the other thing that we didn't talk about is it wasn't just him. They literally kidnapped actual like special effects artists from Toho.
0: Did they, did they kidnap them or did they, or did Toho?
1: They didn't kidnap him in the same way where they like literally put a burlap sack over their head, but they were basically like, Hey, you want to come uh, make a movie? And they were like, yeah, sure. And they didn't f- like really know what they were getting into until it was like happening. And they were like, Oh shit. Like we're going to North Korea. Like that's not what you kind of told us. And they were like, well, you're fucked now. You have to make the movie or low key read between the lines. We'll fucking kill you. And so this movie was, like, this legendary South Korean uh, director making a movie with, like a, like, a film crew that was composed of people who had actually made Godzilla.
0: Yeah, like, the guy in the Paul Gasari suit is Godzilla. He's the guy who plays him in, in like, the first, like, ten Godzilla movies. And I'm blanking on his name now. I, I should know his name. And I do know his name. But I don't remember it now. Fuck. And I didn't write it down. God damn it.
1: Is there anything Is there anything else like that that you can think of? I'm sure there is where, like, somebody made something and then they were, like, the same people, like, also made the, like, fucking generic ripoff version. I mean, I guess, was it Steve Ditko that designed, like, the ripoff Doctor Strange character? Maybe, maybe that.
0: Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ditko obviously created Doctor Strange, which got stolen from him. By Marvel, and then he went to Charlton Comics and made Doctor Graves, which is it's just the bootleg version of it. Also, um, America Chavez, uh, the writer who created America Chavez, Joe Casey, um, created another character that is it's just America Chavez. Her name is um, it's like America Fernandez or something like that. Where he like he's like, oh, America Chavez is getting really popular. I'm just gonna put her in my book and not acknowledge that it's not that character. Or, you know who really did that a lot though? Is, uh, is, um, Steve Gerber, the creator of Howard the Duck. He did that a lot. Um, he had a character after he lost, after he left Marvel the first time and got kicked off of the, of the book, he made a book called Stuart the Rat, which is, it's a you know a Howard the Duck clone character, um and then the second time he you know, he did it again the second time uh that he left Marvel when he was suing them for the rights to own Howard the Duck, he created a character with Jack Kirby called Destroyer Duck, where it was about um a a, a another character that is winkin wink wink nod nod another duck character from the same planet that howard the duck is from um going on a revenge mission against this giant idea eating multi dimensional corporation and he's basically like going on this kind of rambo style revenge mission um but i feel like it's not the same with comics because it actually is pretty frequent in comics for people to rip off their own ideas
1: and also they're they're kind of doing it out of like spite or revenge or just to reclaim an idea that was kind of taken from them As opposed to this, where it was like, it wasn't really about that. It wasn't like, oh, like, we're going to say fuck you to these guys by making our version of it or whatever. It was like this weird culmination of all these disparate variables coming together to where the people who made Godzilla made a weird bootleg Godzilla ripoff like propaganda film.
0: Would you count either Gamera or like any of the later Ishinomori shows, like Kikaiter? Would you count those as ripoffs of the original idea? No,
1: no, it does. It doesn't feel the same because I mean that that that's kind of common where it's like iterating off of a sim like, like people having trends and in, in the things that they make and being like, oh yeah, you you can kind of trace similarities in this person's work of like they tend to make things with similar tropes or whatever. But this was like, let's make a Godzilla movie. And also, we just so happened to have the real people that made Godzilla.
0: Would you count uh, species? Because most of the people that were behind the scenes on species were people associated with Alien. And they were trying to like mimic the success of Alien.
1: Kind of. Or, yes, kind of. Or the, or how, uh, I forget, I'm blanking on the name of the special effects house but the no this is still this is still them kind of doing it out of spite though. I was going to say the the people who were the the practical special effects house that did all of the effects for the 2011 thing reboot movie with um Mary Elizabeth Winstead and then like they replaced it all with CGI. Like 90% of the practical effects that they had done got just replaced with CGI. So then they made they crowdfunded and made that movie uh, called Harbinger. Was it called Harbinger?
0: Oh, I don't know this story. This sounds amazing. What is this? Is it called Harbinger? Is that what you said?
1: Yes. Yeah, stu- yeah Studio ADI. So, Studio ADI did, like, all practical effects for the, the Thing reboot that were, like, totally in line with the original John Carpenter's The Thing. And like at the at the 11th hour, they replaced it all. They like scrapped all of their designs and they just replaced it with CGI. And so they crowdfunded a movie called Harbinger Down, which is just like it's kind of just a generic kind of the thing type movie. Um, it Exactly like this, exactly like what we're talking about. It's like it's like le- it's it's just enough not the thing for legal purposes using all the same like designs and puppets and stuff like that, that that they had already been working on for the thing. And then they crowdfunded the rest and it was the whole movie was made by studio ADI. So it wasn't like they got a director or whatever, like uh, Alec Gillis uh, wrote it and directed it. And he's just one of the one of the guys that worked for Studio ADI. I don't I don't know if
0: he's the main. He's it's him and Tom Woodruff Jr. are the are the main guys. Yeah,
1: he wrote and directed the movie. It was his direct directorial debut, and it was just a movie that they made where they were just like, eh, we were making shit for this thing movie, and it was kind of our like, it was kind of our like, uh, you know, our 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 swan song of like our last hurrah of like making special effects for a creature feature. And then even that got fucked over. So screw it. We're nobody's making movies like this anymore. We can't, you know, we're, our work is we're we're getting work in other things, but we're not getting work making like creature puppets anymore in, in movies like this. So we're just going to make a movie like this. And they made, they made Harbinger down.
0: I want to see this movie so bad. I don't know how I'm, I'm a huge amalgamated dynamics fan. I have no, Oh fuck. Yeah. It's on Tubi for free, baby. I'm going to watch this shit tomorrow. You just made my night, Papa Pricey. Bro, we have to reach out to them and be like, hey, do you want to do an episode about this? Totally. Yeah, we should. 100%. This is fucking awesome. Oh, my God. I love this. Whoa, Lance Hendrickson is in it. Oh, man. I'm so fucking amped right now. Oh, man. You've just derailed all of my enthusiasm for this episode because I just want to watch this now. Fuck Polgasari. Harbinger down, bitch. Pulgasari? More like poor-gasari. Am I right? Kim Jong-il? More like Kim (laughs) Jong-un. Harbinger down? More like harbinger down to fuck. You said
1: that like it was like a stretch, but I feel like that was perfect.
0: (laughs) I should have just committed. I should have just been like harbinger down? More like harbinger down to fuck. Yes um well i'm so fucking amped on this uh look out for the fucking harbinger down episode of deep cuts coming with you near you um so let's let's uh let's let's wrap this up let's let's bring this baby home so While at the Venice Film Festival in 1988, both Choi and Shin escaped. They held up in the U.S. Embassy and were eventually granted political asylum and extradited to the United States. After living in hiding for a few years under the protection of the American government, Shin directed a Hollywood feature film titled The Three Ninjas Knuckle Up under the pseudonym Simon Sheen. And we're going to now watch the trailer for Three Ninjas Knuckle Up. You knew that when times got tough... You were saying before about some reports from a research company. What exactly do these reports say?
1: It says that there's all kinds of chemicals in the groundwater. And you have the computer disk that contains all this information? Yes. And there seemed no way out.
0: There's my father. What did you do to him?
1: They'd be back. Yeah!
0: Yeah!
1: Told you not to hire
0: that idiot in the first place. We'll help you find your father, Joe. You will? Three ninjas knuckle up. And if that disc shows up at the hearing, you're going to be dog meat, son. He's here, all right. Cold, Rocky, and Tum Tum spring into action. <laughs> Cold, Rocky, and Tum Tum. Yeah! Ah! <laughs> come on, come on! I got you now! Fire!
1: Fire! I gotta get the quiver. The disc is in there. The disc? The Indian Jack, the kids kind of got him. We'll get him, Jack. We'll get him. And
0: (laughs) nothing can stop them. (laughs) Catch! Kids don't belong here. And gorillas belong in the zoo. What? (laughs) 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 They may be small. Rocky, you don't drive? I do now. Their Dino bike. This is better than
1: Christmas. Three ninjas knuckle up. I love you
0: guys. Oh, and I just took a bath too. My god.
1: Can I you love... imagine? Can you <laughs> imagine? <laughs> <You're>... <laughs> it's like, I filmed the first North Korean on-screen kiss, and this is the shit that I'm doing
0: now. This fucking straight to VHS fucking <laughs> I made it I made it through literal prison being kidnapped held against my will being forced to abandon my family. Oh, and then the thing we didn't even talk about is that he and and Choi got back together because who else would they have? Who else did they have to fucking interact with? So they like got remarried in North Korea, which like is so fucked up that his whole family was just like, all right, bye. I mean, not on not. It's not their fault. It's not really his fault either. It's just fucking horrible. And then he comes here and he's like, all right, I've got a vision. Rocky loves Emily. Rocky loves Emily. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a I've got a vision and it's tum tums saying, ew, I just took a bath. i wonder what he i wonder if
1: he i wonder if he like felt like that was just so beneath him like my fucking career like what has become of me or if he's just like so relieved to be free of his fucking prison that he's just like fuck
0: yeah i just took a bath (laughs) roll that beautiful bean footage baby (laughs) (laughs) well especially because like so the three ninjas movies, for those who aren't aware, are like, they came out kind of towards the tail end of like ninja exploitation in America. So they were like, all right, so the adults and the and the teens have gotten their ninja movies. And there's just been like a sea of action movies that starred ninjas. So now it's filtered down in our culture to the point where it's like little kids now have to get their ninja thing. So we're going to have these three white kids.
1: It's like a weird like cross between like ninja turtles and like alvin and the chipmunks
0: yeah it's it's you know these three human kids that like solve problems and fight crime with ninja powers but they're not like super powered they just know ninjutsu like they know karate (laughs) basically and like uh, you know it's a movie aimed at kids but it's still like wildly problematic and culturally appropriative but then this one, the third one, which technically is the second one in terms of chronology, uh, cause it's a, it's like an in-between cool. Um, the third one, Knuckle Up is like doubly culturally appropriate yeah, because it's, it's them teaming up with a, the with a Native Indian. Am- yeah. It's them teaming with a Native American man and they like learn like Native American spirituality and wear headdresses and like moccasins and like, Oh, bro. It's a, it's a whole, a whole other thing.
1: And he's like, you can't cancel me. I was in a North Korean prison for five years. I had to listen to Kim Jong-il pitch me his movie ideas for a decade. And I had to act like they it sounded awesome.
0: Well, the other thing is that's really funny about this is the reason he was able to escape is because he and Kim Jong-un had become friends, basically. And Kim Jong-il basically trusted him. He thought that he had just like been converted and like was one of the chosen ones now and he was just gonna permanently be the resident filmmaker of north korea and then they were at that 1988 venice film festival and he was just like see you later sucker and bounced to the embassy he's like they say they say uh
1: they say bros before hoes but freedom before bros
0: motherfucker peace and the the other thing that's, you know, it I don't know if it's sad or really beautiful or a mixture of the two is that when they got to America, uh, he and and Choi, they, they stayed together, like, until they died. Um,
1: Trauma bonding.
0: And then at, at a certain point, they went back to South Korea. Um, I think they went back there in, like, 2010 or 2012 or something. They just, they moved back to Korea.
1: I've made all of the three ninjas movies I can. My work here is done. I'm going back to the motherland.
0: <laughs> I'm just so curious what it's like to be one of his children from the other f- marriage, you know, where you basically just grow up without a dad. And it's like part of you, I'm sure, hates him. And the other part of you just feels really angry and sad that he was taken from you because it wasn't like he chose to go there.
1: Yeah. His uh, his, his three children from his, from his second marriage, Rocky, Tum Tum. whatever that whatever the other third one's name is, colt
0: maybe something i colt 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 those were his kids names oh no (laughs) that's so sad i don't know andrew what are your what are your what are your closing thoughts on on this really sad, fucked up, but very deeply interesting story. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I can't even I can't even imagine it. It's like it's
1: crazy how you hear these stories where people just have to massively adapt their lives to like unfathomable traumas. Like, you know, we we sort of bro- drop into the story and it's like, oh, it's crazy that. He made these movies in North Korea and it was like this fucking crazy shit. And then he left it like, but this was all after he like was taken away from his family. Like, it, it, like, I can't even imagine that. I can't even imagine just like, oh, well, I was kidnapped and taken to another country and I'll never see my two kids again. Uh, I guess now I just I'm just in a different stage. I'm just in a this is the next chapter of my life. Like that's, that's in the, and that's like happened to him multiple times throughout this whole story. He's like taken away from his family. Never saw him again.
0: It's just going to be you and me in like Soviet Russia.
1: Yeah. Just like
0: maybe trapped with me,
1: just making those reaction videos, but it just becomes like a chore after a while. (laughs) We're just like, yeah, this is Stuart Gordon made this, uh, whole thing was shot inside of a castle. (laughs) (laughs)
0: yeah yeah i mean i i there are periods in which i feel like i am trapped in a cage of my own making with the various creative projects that i take on but i can tell you one thing sure as fuck ain't the same as being trapped in a literal cage by kim jong-il
1: yeah it's 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 just it's insane it's uh like yeah like i said like the idea of like having to just constantly adapt your life and just be like well that horrible life shattering thing has happened. I guess I just, I'm doing this now. Um, and just having to adapt the, the traumatic bonding of the, of, of, you know, the two of them getting back together. Um, like I said, whether, whether that was like, you know, they were kind of, uh, meant to be together or soulmates or whatever. And, and, this whole thing ended up being some kind of weird opportunity for them to like realize that they still loved each other and still wanted to be together. Or if it was like just, you know, a a traumatic bonding situation where, you know, you, you, when you, when you, when you're through such a horrific event with somebody, it's like, you can't, nobody can ever understand what you went through aside from this person. So, you know, you kind of just end up bonding with people and sticking with them because you're just like, my, f- my other wife is never going to understand this. Um, that's super, that's super fascinating. There's just, there's a lot of, th- there's a lot of the little human things that I would love to have more insight on. The overarching story itself is really fascinating, but just those little things are the things that I keep returning to of like, man, I really wish I could, I really wish I could know like what happened in all these people's lives and what they were thinking and like the emotional Uh, the emotional uh, processes that they were going through and like why he went to search for her. Was it purely just to try to clear his name or did he feel like he wanted to find her? Yeah, it's, it's nuts.
0: And also the, uh, the, 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 also the, the, just the, the fact that he wasn't just a director, but the fact that he was the most famous director in South Korea, it, that's what's even stranger to me. Because when there is that level of, fel- of fame or attention, you expect there to be safety rails, people that are invested in the person's well-being, governmental intervention, something, because there's so much of a spotlight on him. But, you know, when you have a totalitarian rogue state, Who's just like, we love movies. All right. That's what's going to happen? <laughs> okay.
1: It's like if, it's like if like during like the height of the fucking Iraq war, like fucking Saddam Hussein, like kidnapped Steven Spielberg and like forced him to like make a like jackass knockoff. He's like, <laughs> I just, I just, I just want to, I just want to, I want to do a thing with all my bros where we just like prank each other and like. I just want to, like, stick a firecracker in somebody's ass and just, like, light it on fire and just watch their reaction.
0: And Steven Spielberg is just like, all right. And on that visual, I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Andrew Price. This has been Deep Cuts. You can find me online at either heydavebaker.com or you can go read my webcomic, which is currently being serialized at everyoneistulip.com. Andrew, where can people find you on the internet? Oh, also, you should go follow if you got TikTok. You should go follow my TikTok because I'm doing stupid videos and fun things on TikTok uh, at X, same as my Instagram. Uh, Andrew, where can people find you on the internet?
1: You can find me uh, being held captive in North Korea, making bootleg knockoff Kaiju films and loving every minute of it. I don't. I'm not. Gonna, I'm not escaping. You don't have to worry about it. You can leave the door unlocked. I'm not going anywhere. This this is way better than what I was doing before. Uh, and you can also find me at DAPriceWrites.com where you can get my book Deadbolt AI Private Eye. You can buy the Mystery Treehouse Investigation Agency patches. So you can be, you too can be a junior sleuth in the Mystery Treehouse Investigation Agency. You can buy those on uh, my website and my store. You can also get them at Dave's website and you can also get them at deepcutspod.com at the official Deepcuts merch store. And uh, while we're, while we're at it, you can also follow Deep Cuts on TikTok at Mystery Treehouse. We, uh, we do sort of like, quick bite explainers on stories uh, like three minute long across three videos, explainers on crazy, fascinating, true stories from pop culture. Uh, Some of them are based on episodes we've done. So, you know, if you have some kind of interest in hearing a more quick cut down version of a story we've done as a podcast episode, check us out on TikTok, TikTok. But we also do. Stories that we won't be doing as episodes because there wasn't enough detail to make a full episode about them or for whatever reason, they just work better short form. Um, We'll also be regularly updating three minute um, short form explainer videos on interesting topics that you won't hear on the podcast. So check it out.
0: And on that note, uh, bye. What? This is the second time
1: that you've like added a thing on the end that. You just completely bailed on in the middle of it. <laughs> like you never you never say anything at the end. It always just ends on me talking and when yeah. I'm finished it's over. But yeah. the last two times you've just tacked on a little thing where you started to say something and then just bailed on it. Deep Cuts is a production by Boy Genius Media. If you'd like to find this show and others like it, please visit boygeniusmedia.com
0: or deepcutspod.com. If you want to join in on post-episode discussions, please join the Deep Cuts Podcast Facebook group. Finally, subscribe to our YouTube channel for additional video content.
1: The incidental music for this episode was created by the Dead Boy Detectives.